I did investment banking, therefore I knew financial modeling. And I would be that would be one of my assets that I would bring to the table. And I remember one of the partners saying, you're not gonna use any of that here. I said, excuse me? Welcome to Founder Friendly, the podcast brought to you by Strategic Venture Society, the premier club on campus that looks into entrepreneurship, technology, and venture capital. My name is Skylar Carroll, or Sky. And my name is Andrew Zhang, or Taco. And with us today is Skylar Fernandez, founder of Venture University, Simon Ventures, the creator of the best startup pitch deck, which has over 500,000 views and downloads, and is one of the biggest figures in venture capital today. So thank you, Skylar, so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Um, yeah. yeah, so could you go ahead and tell us a little bit more, something we might have missed. Yeah. Sure, yeah, well, I've been uh, high level. I've been doing venture capital now for a little over 12 years. Um, uh, started off doing traditional VC for about five or six years um, at a venture fund in Connecticut. Um, then I uh, was fortunate to launch Simon Venture Group, uh, which was the uh, the investment arm of Simon Property Group. Um, Simon Property Group is a S&P 100 company. Uh, they're the largest uh, retail real estate company in the world. And while I was there actually at the time, uh, Simon's retail sales were larger than Amazon and Apple combined. Um, and so I launched the venture fund there, largely focused on uh, fashion startups, uh, real estate technology companies, um, and uh, retail brands. Uh, after doing that for a little over three years, um, I launched a fund called Cleveland Avenue uh, with the former CEO of McDonald's, uh, Don Thompson. Um, there, uh, one of the key investments I did uh, was leading uh, the Series G investment in Beyond Meat. Uh, which made us the largest investor um, in the company uh, before the IPO. Um, so we had 22 million invested, and at the time of the IPO, once our lockup period was over, um, it returned a little bit more than three times our entire fund. So it turned roughly 22 million into a little over 300 million. Um, and uh, my investment team. So now, fast forward after Cleveland Avenue, I launched uh, Venture University, which is really a combination between with the name Venture and University. It's part venture fund, it's a multi-stage investment fund, um, and it has university side, which is an investor accelerator program. So people join our investment team as part of a VCP apprenticeship program, um, and they're with us for three months to 12 months, uh, where we do about three to five investments a quarter. Um, and we invest, uh, we're multi-stage, so we invest pre-seed through growth, and we have six core uh, deal sourcing teams. Uh, we have a consumer team, enterprise, uh, fintech, frontier tech, frontier being like space, nano, oh, okay. uh, healthcare, and real estate tech. So we have six wow. teams. Covering the full board. Covers yeah. everything. And uh, the real innovation behind Venture University uh, there is that it allows us to basically um, break the traditional venture model in that we have now created what we believe is the most scalable venture fund um, in the entire world. Um, so we are, uh, A, we're the most scalable in the sense that we have a 35-person investment team, which is definitely one of the largest investment teams that exists in the world. And we're sourcing more deal flow than mathematically any other fund we're aware of. So we're sourcing somewhere between uh, 15,000 and 20,000 deals a year. Put that in perspective, Andreessen Horowitz sources around 3,000 deals a year, same thing with Sequoia. So we're multiples of, uh, of the amount of deals they source. Um, and then the real secret sauce of VU is after people go through our program, they graduate and they join other venture funds, private equity funds, and we essentially have uh, insiders or we're infiltrating the entire industry with our, our talent from VU. Yeah. And that's giving us access to, uh, to proprietary deal flow. Um, so with every quarter, it becomes a sustainable advantage of getting into better and better deals um, and more and more funds. So that's part of kind of the disruption that uh, Venture University has created. Awesome. 
Thank you so much. And we definitely want to hear more about how you, what inspired you to start sure. VU. Um, but just in general, this episode is going to be like a warm introduction to venture capital and especially for listeners who aren't familiar with the space. So if you could give us a definition of VC in layman's terms. Sure. Yeah, I love that question. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think the good definition of VC, and I, I think of this both as uh, someone who's both a practitioner of VC for over a decade plus an academic of VC, I would say venture capital is really the the industry that is investing in the future of human civilization, um, in that it is the the capital that's willing to take the highest risk possible, way higher risk than if you invest in public equities, in that you're investing in illiquid assets, where your only way of getting return is either through selling that company or having it go public. But it's the probably the most risky of all asset classes, um, definitely riskier than hedge funds because you can just uh, pull out uh, from any time if you're in a, investing in a public equity company. Um, and so if you think of the, the companies that have been funded by the world of venture capital, you have the likes of Apple, Microsoft, Google, Intel, all of them are venture-backed. And even some of the most well-known venture funds <coughs> like Venrock. Venrock comes from the word venture you know, venture with Rockefeller. The Rockefeller family created Venrock. Is also one of the earliest investors <coughs> in, the, in Apple and Intel. And so you find that, uh, again, venture, I would say the best definition of venture capital is the capital that's willing to take the risk to invest in the future of human civilization. So for current Stern students <coughs> who are under the misconception that they need to go into investment banking in order to get into venture capital sure. or private equity, what advice do you have? Yeah, my advice is in the old days, I think it was a lot more of a requirement to go to business school. It was a more of a requirement to do venture cap, to do private equity, or sorry, to do investment banking, consulting before doing venture capital, private equity, hedge funds. I think the world has now evolved, where the value of undergrad, the value of business school, has significantly changed. Um, and the the only reason that investment banks and consulting firms have been a good source for hedge funds, VC and P to hire from is they're, they're basically a, a filter system for the population. It proves that you're a hustler and it proves that you're not an idiot. Um, you got those two check boxes. Um, same thing with universities. You know, sadly, you know, even being an NYU alum, I can say uh, NYU was really important for me, but not in the ways I thought it was going to be. I could have take, not taken a single class at NYU and I would have had the same outcome, I think. The, what NYU gave me was the career services to get access to be a pool of people to be interviewed for those investment banking jobs I did during the summers and semesters. I didn't have to take a single academic class to get that value. So I probably still would have paid NYU $200,000 <laughs> to get access to career services and it would have been filtered out of a large population of people that applied to be part of that student body. But it wasn't for any of the value from uh, the classes that I took. So academically it was pretty weak for why I chose to go to NYU. I did it all for the career career uh, possibilities. And I think that's the reality of the future of education. So um, MBA is the same thing. I think it's really unfortunate that people get into Harvard Business School and Stanford and they'll spend another $160,000, $200,000 and they're not guaranteed any quality investment experience and they spend two years of their time of their life. That's why we created Venture University was if you get in, which is a very, we have a 0.5% acceptance rate, so highly competitive round. It's more, it's 10 times more competitive to get into than Harvard or Princeton at 5 and 6%. Um, 
But if you get in, you're guaranteed really high quality VC investment experience for a fraction of the cost of doing an MBA or undergrad and for a much less amount of time. So I think the future of trade schools with the rise of uh, boot camps for learning how to program, um, trade schools I think are becoming more and more common of a much more valuable use of your time. So uh, on, on flip that with, if my advice for you if for undergrads would be know that, yeah, you can go the standard path that's existed in the past, but the future is gonna be even more competitive where I'd rather hire someone, and I think most people would, who graduated from Venture University then worked at Goldman Sachs. Um, and I'll know that you actually have a network of other venture funds, you know how to do venture capital, even pre-screen specifically for VC. I would always hire someone out of Venture University over Goldman, um, but you know that's how the industry has been trained to hire people from. But I think that's gonna change over time, uh, where if you wanna create that edge, doing a program like Venture University will be important. The other thing I would say is, there's a real opportunity where you can skip the pain of investment banking consulting. Like, Investment banking jobs suck. They're really <laughs> terrible. Like they seem like this like gold standard. Like if you if you got the Goldman job, you made it. But the job sucks. Like you are glorified PowerPoint, you know, Excel monkey. Um, terrible hours. Um, not probably good for your health. Um, and if you could skip that, I highly recommend it. Um, so I think the earlier you can start getting internship work experience at venture funds and private equity funds and try to skip that two years of your life doing bank consulting, you, you can. Um, and it's becoming more and more possible to do so with the likes of Venture University. So as sophomores, um, I think our one reluctance to going into careers and at venture firms is that they don't always have job openings available. Sure. Um, whereas there's more of a certainty that you'll get a follow-up offer yep. in investment banking, you know, and you pay your dues, you do the two years of yeah, hell, and sure. then there's something, there's a reward at the end for of that. For sure. Um, so how can we kind of mitigate the risk of not getting a job once we've graduated? Yeah, I'd say I'd probably still pursue doing investment banking internships. I question whether or not you have to do it after college. Okay. So it's like I would do, I, I'm still looking back on it. I'm happy I did my investment banking internships. Uh, that was more comfortable. The real pain was actually doing it after college. Okay. That's where the more hell, the real hell started. Um, I would say become a lot more brand focused on yourself. So an interesting evolution, I have two sons, I guess I'll be imparting this wisdom on them as they get older, um, one's three and one's four months, is when you're first born, you're kind of a blank slate and your only branding association is your family. So if you have like a family that has a reputation, that helps you a lot. Um, that could be from wealth or from expert access, whatever. Then you kind of uh, attach a brand of a high school that you went to or a college and that becomes who you are. Then you try to attach yourself to a brand of like a consulting firm, an investment bank. And so basically you're, you're uh, leveraging other brands to your brand to make you seem more valuable. The best thing you can probably do is eventually break away from that and just be your own brand. And you have to put a lot of time into building that. So that's you know coming up with being a thought leader, creating resources for your industry, um, and providing value for the vertical that you want to go into or the industry you want to go into. The sooner you can start doing that, the more you own your own destiny rather than relying on a job to provide your brand value. Um, and so it forces you to be a lot more independent thinking, but that's risky and people, 
you know, are scared sometimes to do that, but that's your closest thing to controlling your own destiny is build your own personal brand by, you know, doing your own podcasts, uh, doing events, writing articles, blogs, all of that. Um, basically just not requiring someone else to give you a job, um, to make your brand. That's really excellent advice. And something that I definitely think we all know, but we aren't able to put into words. So sure. thank you for doing Absolutely. that. Um, I think we touched a little bit about investment banking is kind of hell, and it's not the greatest workspace, mm -hmm. but I think something that we don't understand as students yet is what like the day-to-day -day for a VC looks like. Sure. Um, so for investment banking, I think we were like, oh, you stare at Excel sheet all day sure. and just kind of keep staring. Yep. Um, so what kind of like the day-to-day -day look like for VCs? Yeah, so to share a fun story and that leads into that, I remember the first venture interview I had, I had you know, just lost the job at Credit Suisse, um, was starting this tech startup and was interviewing at the venture fund that gave us some money as well. And I was pitching them that I did investment banking, therefore I knew financial modeling. And I would be, that would be one of my assets that I would bring to the table. And I remember one of the partners saying, you're not gonna use any of that here. I said, excuse me? Uh, he said, yeah, you're not gonna use anything you learned at, at Credit Suisse and investment banking here. I said, well, why the hell did I just like <laughs> think that I had to do investment banking to get this job? It's like, oh, you just, it proves that you're a hustler and you're not an idiot. Uh, and I, it dawned on me that really everything I did learn at Credit Suisse, I am not using today. Um, and so it then begs the question, well, what the hell are you doing in yeah. venture capital if I'm not using any of the skills I really learned in investment banking? So the what a day-to-day -day looks like as a VC is, uh, well, the one thing is that you don't have to dress the same way. So you can wear jeans every day, oh, a lot yeah. more relaxed awesome. clothes. Beautiful. Yeah, you're not judged on what tie you're wearing at being a Hermes tie. Um, <laughs> just very comfortable clothes every day, so that's always a perk. You also don't have, you're not valued on FaceTime, like in consulting and investment banking, a lot of being valued is your FaceTime. With VC, you're actually valued more if you're not in the office um, because you're meeting with startups. You're either going to the startups' offices or you're meeting startups at coffee shops. You could do, spend your whole day doing your job at a Starbucks and just have startups come in and pitch you, which is kind of it's like your own personal Shark Tank. Um, but every day, we'll usually do about, on an individual basis, we'll do about five to eight startups a day that you'll probably be meeting with um, and evaluating whether or not you're going to pass on them or decide you want to do additional due diligence. Uh, typically a week we'll have Monday or Tuesday will be a partners meeting on that partners meeting you'll present your top one or two deals that you sourced from the prior week to have this open conversation with the partners and then we'll decide to either kill those companies after the partners meeting or decide to move forward with some key questions that get brought up during the partners meeting uh, that we want to ask um, and so that's kind of every day as you, you spend initially as a VC um, if you're joining a fund at least really spending most of your time deal sourcing and doing due diligence. And then when you find a company you think is really amazing, you decide that you want to do an investment committee, organize all your notes around the company's due diligence, um, and then present it to get approval for investment. That's pretty much rinse and repeat. And you know, in VU, for example, uh, we'll do three to five investments a quarter. It's also a higher uh, volume than private equity. So if you like lots of transactions, venture is great. Um, if you like fewer transactions and more focus on one particular company, private equity is better. You'll do maybe one to four investments a year at a private equity fund. Um, so a lot more deeper due diligence, but the companies have a lot more meat on their bone to actually do due diligence on. In venture, we're oftentimes investing in pre-revenue companies or pre-product developed companies. Um, so you're really doing more, more of your due diligence on the market 
on the team's ability to execute, um, less on the historical financials because those don't yeah. really exist, um, which is why knowing financial modeling is only somewhat <laughs> useful. Um, uh, but you do want to look at projections. Um, the and then the from a full life cycle of a fund manager, if you're going out to launch your own fund, it'll take you probably 12 months to raise your fund. So initially, you're just raising the fund. Maybe you start you do a few sprinkled deals to kind of show that you can source and make a few investments while you're raising your fund. Once you start making your fund uh, investments, that'll usually be for the first, call it three to four years, will be establishing which of those are your portfolio companies. And then starting in years two through years 10, you're just doing follow-on capital in those portfolio companies that you selected in the first three to four years. Um, so depending on when you join a fund, it's actually a really important thing. When you're interviewing with a VC fund or a PE fund, it's important to ask where they are in their fund cycle. Because yeah. if you're joining at the very beginning, then you're going to spend most of your time helping to raise the fund. If you join the fund in their first three to four years, you'll be helping them identify the actual portfolio companies that you'll be investing in. And if you join years five forward and they haven't raised a second fund, you're mainly will just be doing follow-on investments in a portfolio that's already established. You'll get no new portfolio company experience. You'll just get follow-on investment experience. So depending on where you're joining that fund and its life cycle will change how what you're focusing on. Um, when, uh, when I was at my first VC fund for about four to five years, I did a few new deals, but most of it was in follow-on rounds um, in the portfolio we had built up. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much day-to-day. Is It's everything from deal sourcing, due diligence, making investments, and then lastly, which is probably the most important, is supporting the portfolio companies. How do you address the things that they need the most help with, whether they need help with getting access to more clients, partnerships, finding new key employees, solving <clears throat> random issues that come up, and then helping them to go out to raise their next follow-on capital every roughly 18 months. There'll be another follow-on round. So working with them and pitching other investors to come in and co-invest with you for, for the next round, um, that's really your whole life becomes helping those portfolio companies become successful, ultimately, ideally getting acquired or doing an IPO. Um, so you're, you're with the whole cycle. But on a day-to-day basis, it's mainly a lot of meeting with startups and supporting the portfolio companies. Um, but what if you, know, you were describing a f- fund that's raising maybe your first fund, yep. where do you find, where do you source startups when you might not have, you know, yeah, as much experience that's as you one do? Of the, so if you are a first time fund manager and you're going out to raise your fund, you'll quickly learn that you are in a lot of ways a startup, um, just like a startup is, but you're a startup fund. And the main way that you're differentiating yourself is how you source deals. Uh, because that's your base, one of your core values is just how do you how are you going to source a deal that Andreessen didn't see or Sequoia didn't see, yeah. or how are you going to source a deal that Sequoia is going to be doing, and why are they going to allow you in just because yeah. you have money? Uh, so you have you have to figure out how am I really differentiating deal source, and there's not that many ways to really differentiate that. Um, we came up with our own hack in that we are sourcing more deal flow than any other venture fund in the world. So we're yeah. at sixteen to twenty thousand deals a year. Nobody's at that scale. So if we don't know about a deal that's happening, we're not doing our job because we have a scale of people that we should know every deal that's happening every quarter, at least know about it. Yeah. Whether we can get in, different question, but we should at least know about it. Um, so one is really starting to engage the startup ecosystem and the venture ecosystem. A real good cheat, if you're a first-time fund manager, is start building relationships with other VCs and seeing if you can co-invest with those funds. Um, and hopefully giving you a higher quality deal flow. 
Um, the net and the challenge is, let's say there's no such thing as proprietary deal flow anymore. Everyone knows everybody. The question then is, why are you going to be allowed to get into that deal? Yeah. So um, Mojo, as you go back to that example, it was it's a $50 million round. Um, we were able to secure a million dollars of the 50. Supposedly, there was over $100 million of capital that wanted to go into Mojo. So why did NEA and Strut Capital allow us in? It's because of our unique value add. So what is that going to be for any fund manager? Usually comes down to a few things. One is the value of your network. Is your network somehow going to be valuable in future capital raises, customers, you know, strategic expertise? What is that value going to be? Um, and two, um, you know, are what's going to be your role going forward as a one-time investor, or are you going to be an investor that's providing multiple cap, you know, capital rounds? Um, a lot of times, angels and seed funds can only put in capital once, and then they can never put more capital in because they don't have enough money. Um, if you take capital from a deeper pocketed investor, they're more valuable to founders because they can invest in multiple rounds. Um, so how a founder is thinking about how to make up the cap table, they start thinking through that, What's who's the most useful people to be on my cap table? Um, and if you can't provide that value other than I'm friends with Joe, that only goes so far. Can work, it's really helpful to sometimes be friends with Joe, but you have to provide some actual value if you want to consistently get into the best deals. Um, so when we're talking about this massive deal flow, deal flow from 16,000, 20,000 deals, yep. um, what would you say is another differentiator between maybe just a good VC investor sure. and a great VC investor? Because the 20,000 deal flow is insane. Yeah. Um, but, but like what else? Yeah. yeah. Else? I mean, you <laughs> you saw Beyond Meat and were able to be one of the biggest investors in yep. it. And I'm assuming that's one of your best investments to date. Yeah, we, and we've, we've done of the... Of the 1.8 billion that we've deployed over like 35 years, we were also early investors in Facebook, Uber, wow. Venmo, Twitter. Um, uh, we got a bunch, so we got 250 companies. So uh, I think if you think about what differentiates great VCs from good VCs, uh, and I'd also argue it's the same thing to be true of like differentiates great first-time fund managers and not so great first-time fund <laughs> managers, is if you look at the portfolio that they're building. What is the size of the market opportunities that they're going after? That's probably the easiest way to differentiate, I'd say, really good venture funds from not so good ones. Um, and so when if you've never done venture before, by the way, there's like the famous quote of Vinod Koshla who says, you have to lose like $20 million of venture capital before you know what you're doing, which is probably not that far from the truth. Um, hopefully it's like in at least 20 companies at a million dollars each to really get a lot of data points. Someone will test it yeah. and prove it. <laughs> but I mean, all, the other challenge with venture is the feedback loop. The fact that you're making investments and you're not going to know for three, five, seven years if you made a good decision. Yeah. So you could actually suck at your job for a long time and not know <laughs> if you're good at it or not. Um, and so that feedback loop is one of the challenges of venture. Um, so how do you, I, I guess the, again, the easiest one would be, are the market opportunities bigger than other venture funds? Um, Venture is highly skewed in its asymmetrical aspects, and it's largely driven by market size. So we do an exercise every quarter where we go after we go after a definition of what is a small, medium, large, extra large, super ginormous market sizes. So you start getting a perspective. Humans have a challenge where I think after like six to eight zeros, it all is big, um, and so you really have to start putting that in perspective of what actually is big. Big is for us at least $10 billion, where if you got 1% of the 10 billion, it's 100 million of revenue. But that's the starting place. 
we try to really push everyone to think for really, really big market opportunities, so much so that um, we have this module, where, which is how do you identify and invest in a company that could be worth $1 trillion, right? And we have an, uh, we have an article coming out um, which I've been trying to finish up over the last few weeks, but we're, we're, we're coining a new phrase um, or new category called the Chimera. The Chimera is a company worth a trillion dollars or more. We know unicorns are a billion or more. Yeah. Chimeras are this mythical creature that um, is multiple creatures in one animal. So it has like the head of a lion, it has uh, like the tail <laughs> of a dragon, has like uh, aspects of goats and other crazy animals all packed into the same animal. But it's basically a platform. It's kind of we looked for all the mythical creatures that made the most sense for what uh, a platform is, and that's the best you can come up with. And we did an analysis of the top largest hundred companies by market cap, basically the biggest companies that human civilization has created, and they're all plat- almost all of them are platforms. One of the ones that's not a platform is like Netflix, which is why I think it's overvalued. Um, but they're all platforms in the sense that they sell multiple things. They none of them are just selling to enterprises or consumers. They all sell to both. And so we're doing this exercise to help think about what are the opportunities that could be worth the trillion dollars. And we now believe we've identified around 10 to 14 concepts that either exist now or we think will exist in the future. And those are the opportunities we're going after that are just these really, really big, big opportunities. Um, I think if you're a first time VC and you're just gonna be a good but not a great VC, you're going after a lot of the shiny object syndrome Mm -hmm. and you're not validating it as actually a big opportunity. So uh, that would be the biggest differentiator. When I look across the best VCs, um, they are going after the biggest markets. So what I'm hearing is that you need to be really literate and understand so many different industries. You need to understand venture capital. You need to understand how it's very much a, a, a career that requires you to know people and be good with interacting with people and getting their insights like we're doing today. Um, And we were listening to a podcast recently with Josh Wolf, and he was talking about how he gets information anxiety and he needs to read everything um, and just digest anything that it, you know, it could be people magazine, but if half the country's reading it, he should too. Um, So would you give the same advice? Um, So... uh, I guess there's a difference between advice versus what I actually do. Um, <laughs> I have very little amount of free time. I actually don't read that much. Um, so I spend way more of my time with companies. Uh, and as a result, like we're looking into the, the lab-grown blood space right now. Um, we're actually looking at the lab-grown everything space. We're looking at lab-grown bone, lab-grown milk, lab-grown blood. But our healthcare team right now is going big on health of lab-grown blood. We're meeting with as many companies as we can that are doing lab-grown blood, and we're talking to a handful of blood experts. So I'm not reading a lot of articles about blood, but I am trying to meet with the smartest people I can to talk yeah. to about that play. So as a venture investor, if, especially if you're a generalist, I'm meeting with so many startups every day and every week that I just start learning about a lot of verticals. You absorb it. <laughs> yeah, I literally don't need to read because I have so many startups pitching me every day that that's kind of my content consumption yeah. is largely the startups I'm meeting with and the VCs I'm talking to. So that's the most honest answer I can give compared to I read a lot of books or yeah. articles. Occasionally I do, but I, I really spend, I don't just don't have enough time. Yeah. So I spend more of my time just meeting with companies. But advice for people interested in the space ah. and who want to be able to have the understanding sure. that you do without maybe yeah. the network? Yeah, a few things I would say then. Um, 
the one number one book I would recommend would be uh, no, uh, <laughs> The Business of Venture Capital. Okay. If you read The Business of Venture Capital book, it's the only book I'm aware of that was written specifically for venture capital investors. All the other books out there were written for entrepreneurs to learn how to do venture capital. But if you want to be a VC, it's probably the Bible, and it's actually an enjoyable book to read. Um, but The Business of Venture Capital... Other than that, I'd probably listen to podcasts. Um, I think that's a you know the twenty minute VC and this one for all the other VCs that you're going to have speaking and entrepreneurs. I think podcasts like these are the easy way to quickly learn a lot of the key attributes of being a good venture investor. Um, beyond that, the only way you can really learn is by doing. So again, the reason we created Venture University was exactly that: just doing it every day is the best way to learn. Um, rather than just, uh, you know, you can only do it academically for so far. And to wrap up, what was, you know, the inciting incident that inspired the Venture University? Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So um, I guess about two to three years ago, I was brainstorming with my wife around people were talking to us about wanting us to launch another fund. And we only want to do it if we were really going to not just be a pool of capital investing in startups, but disrupting the whole industry. And we saw that on one side, venture is not scalable. The fact that you can have three to seven people on most venture teams for a $100 million fund is just not scalable and being able to source a lot of deal flow. And we're entering a world where the cost of innovation is going down and the speed of innovation is going up. And we're going to have massive more startups being created, which means... If the, if the size of an investment team is staying static and there's not, the business model of a venture fund isn't creating an increase of capital efficiency, but the number of startups that are being created grows, it means every year, every VC fund is seeing a smaller and smaller fraction of total deal flow that exists, which is an interesting play, especially as entrepreneurship becomes more and more global. So I was like, how can I make the most scalable venture fund in the world by human capital to review deals? And on the flip side, the way that talent gets into venture capital sucks. Like every time I had hired an analyst and associate in the past, I have to review 1,000 to 1,500 applications to find somebody. What if I could just go to a, a curated pool of people that were already selected as the best of best for the industry and providing a similar benefit that investment banks and consulting firms do, but even more specific to the industry of venture capital? Um, and so Venture University solved the innovation of scaling a fund based on deal flow but also scaled creating really high quality talent for the industry and creating this unfair, sustainable competitive advantage as people join other funds and share the deal flow at all the funds that they're joining. We've essentially created a VC mafia that gets stronger with every quarter um, as we're infiltrating the industry with our talent. So it, it makes us a really powerful fund, um, which I'm hoping as we go out to raise our, our fund too, we'll get a lot of excitement from, from investors to invest in our fund. But it was the light bulb that went off was that this model disrupts the entire industry and it makes the whole industry better. So you identified a pain point in the industry and you also knew you needed to create a fund that sourced yeah. in a separate way. And I didn't think anyone was going to be, most funds don't want to educate people of how to do venture capital. So I had this benefit of I, I've taught venture capital in the past and I was a practitioner. Most VCs would think it was beneath them to launch like an academic uh, educational program. And we saw that as our advantage for how we were going to launch. Definitely. And do you think that in the coming years, other VCs will, will follow your lead? Um, I think they'll follow our lead and so that they'll hire more of our people. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think the undertaking of trying to copy VU's model yeah. has some big negative ramifications. So the industry of venture is a really small industry. If you think of 
all of the capital that was deployed last year was like 140 billion. That's the size of some private equity funds, which means the all of the capital deployed in venture capital is the size of like one private equity fund. Shows how small the asset class is. The number of venture funds is probably about like a thousand ish to fifteen hundred. If you have too many copycats of venture universities model, you have too many people graduating that you'll have uh, not enough absorption into the industry, and then people get pissed off. Yeah, I think based on venture universities model right now. With our New York office, our San Francisco office, we just launched our Hong Kong office, and we're about to have Philadelphia, LA, and Boston. <laughs> I don't think there's actually room for a really quality second competitor. Yeah. It's one of those where I think it is a winner take all. And now we're in all these cities that if you do a second program, it'll be kind of, I'd call it the difference between going to Harvard versus University of Phoenix. No, 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 not too big of a ding on University of Phoenix, <laughs> but it's basically the difference. Um, you want to be part of the you know the program that has the highest success rate of breaking into the industry. We've now had 170 people go through the program, and over two thirds of the people are joining venture funds and private equity funds. Um, but I do get very concerned about any copycats, and there's been a few of them, but they're all pretty pretty poor quality. Um, is you want we we're very mindful of not having too many people graduate from VU to make sure the quality stays really high, and we maximize absorption into the industry. We're very strategic. Every cohort has 25% of every 10 years of age. So we have people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. So it's not 30 people trying to get an analyst role. Um, again, that's helping to maximize absorption. So um, it's a, I think it's a problem if you have too many competitors try to copy our model. It'll be a bad thing for the industry. Um, but I know people will try, people already have. The good thing is they all pretty much suck. Yeah. Um, but it's always good having comparisons because it makes us look even better. So exactly, it shows that. that. Yeah. It's you're doing something right. Complimentary yeah. in a way. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. So I think we're about wrapping up now. So if there's anything you wanted to pitch, anything you wanted to tell us about, um, plug anything you want. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think uh, I think this is great. Um, I'm so glad that you guys are doing this. Um, I think this will be really important for the the NYU community and the greater community around NYU. Um, so looking forward to helping with it. Um, if you guys are looking for uh, a fun thing to play, uh, there's a board game that uh, I created a number of years ago called The Next Big Thing, uh, the game of entrepreneurship. Um, it's the number one board game for VC and entrepreneurship. Um, so if you guys are looking for a fun game to play at NYU, awesome. um, definitely uh, get the game. You can get it on um, nextbigthingboardgame.com. So maybe I'd throw that in as a plug, but it's, it's helpful if you want to learn about entrepreneurship and venture capital. It's like the game of life, but from the perspective of a founder. So if you have um, a birthday present that you need to get yeah. for your entrepreneur best friend, now you know. Go for that. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. Uh, it was an absolute honor to have you as our first podcast guest. And I think you set the tone beautifully for how everything will be flowing from now on. So we just want to thank you one more time. No, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for doing this. Thank you. Um, so, so look into Venture University. Yeah. Um, and thank you all for listening. This has been Founder Friendly.